You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. want to look tonight, folks, for a few moments at this passage in John chapter 16, verses 25 to 33. And I've entitled the sermon, Jesus Has Overcome the World. Jesus Has Overcome the World. The disciples at this stage in Jesus' ministry are often really confused about what he's had to say to them heretofore. And it's currently when Jesus begins to communicate with them in a plain manner. He doesn't begin to use the figurative type speech. He doesn't speak in pictures, as it were. It's when he starts to begin to speak to them in a plain manner that it dawns on them what he's been saying all along. They've been on a journey with the Lord. It's been arduous. It's been complicated. But it's also been fruitful and beneficial to them. Any of us know who are are living in this world, and we're all living here unless you're living in a different plane, which I don't think you are. But if we're living in this world, we realize that this world has its pitfalls. It has its ups and downs. And we are living in the school of life every day day. An arduous and complicated journey has also been fruitful and beneficial for these men. And what we find here is that the time will come, and the time is coming sooner rather than later for the disciples and for the Lord Jesus, when he will no longer be with them. He will be translated from glory to glory. He'll be translated through the heavens from earth to eternity and perfection with the Father. And the disciples are aware of this because he said it time and time and time again. However, they've not yet realized the greatest significance of all that Jesus has already said. And as we come to the Lord's table this evening, the the significance of coming and about what we are to partake in cannot be taken lightly. It must never be a matter of root. In the congregation that I grew up in, which I might describe as a hatchbatch and dispatch type of a place, and you might say to yourself, well, what do you mean by that? Well, they baptized everything. If he had had a horse in the field, they would have baptized it and said it was baptized as well. They catechized everything. Everybody was allowed to come to the Lord's table. And out of the 16 or so that came to the Lord's table whenever I was 18 years of age, there's me left. And I'm a Presbyterian minister. Bad job if I can't come to the Lord's table, isn't it? Hatch, batch. Well, we all know what dispatch is. We'll not go into that. It was a matter of rote coming to the Lord's table. I used to sit in the gallery upstairs and watch what was going on down below, and there was hundreds of people on the ground floor participating around this table. Hundreds. And many of them, the only time you'd seen them at church was on the Sunday when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. A matter of rote. A tick box 
exercise, do your duty and pay your vows, exercise twice per year, tick the box. Superstition gone haywire. <clears throat> but folks, as we've come as invited guests to this table, we are remembering the Lord Jesus until he comes again. We are remembering the Jesus who has conquered sin and death and the grave for such as should be saved and therefore invited to this table. This table's for believers. This table's for saved people. This table's for those who have examined themselves in light of Scripture. There's a few things I want to leave with you tonight before we come to the Lord's table. Verses 25 to 28, Jesus' journey back to the Father. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but there is coming when I will no longer speak like this, Jesus says. He now begins to speak to his disciples in a plain way, a plain manner. He commends the work of his Father to the disciples' knowing. That because they love the Savior, then they will also love the Father. Jesus says that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And we are in each other and we dwell in the unity of the Holy Spirit of God. And so if they're going to love the Savior, then they will love the Father. Jesus also communicates to them that the, the Father loved the disciples. Because they had believed and they believed that Jesus, the Son of God, had come from God. That darling of heaven that we've been singing about, he was crucified. Worthy is that lamb. They had believed this. Just didn't believe, like many of the rest around about, that, that Jesus was some sort of good person who had nice things to say and positive things to say to them. But they believed there was something unique and different and special about this Savior. This Jesus who they had traveled with through nearly three years of ministry. And of course, the, the disciples' pattern and grasp of believing was often intermittent. However, what Jesus exists and what Jesus really um, sees in this group, and he, he realizes that some faith exists within their, their hearts and in their minds and in this group. And because the Lord Jesus has left his Father and has come into the world, so there will be a time whenever the work here is completed, and he goes back to be with the Father. And he reminds his disciples of this. He says, On that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father loves you, because you have loved me. That's why the Father loves believers, because they have first loved Christ. Now, what about if you're not a believer? Well, you don't love the Lord Jesus. And therefore, you cannot love the Father unless you love Christ. And because Christ had left the glories of heaven and come down into the sin, sick, and cursed world to save such as should be, then Jesus reminds his disciples that the time is fast approaching that he is leaving to go back to the Father. The work will be completed. Verse 28, I have come from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. 
You see, Jesus didn't come to do his own work. He came to perform the works that the Father sent him to perform. And so when the Father's work had been completed, Jesus returns to his rightful place at the right hand of God. And Jesus reminded his disciples here that this time was fast approaching. It was coming down the line. It's a bit like, I suppose, a steam train or a train of any description coming down the line and you're waiting at the station for it to get on. What he's saying to the disciples is, look, it's time for me to go. The time is coming soon. John's gospel has a motif that runs right through it, that the time is not yet, the time is not yet, the time is And now the time is, the time is approaching. And folks, if we've come tonight to celebrate this Lord's Supper, the time is fast approaching when Christ will come again and there will be no more need to sit around this table. This table will pass whenever we celebrate with Christ eternally. This is a foretaste of what we do this evening in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes the second time, until he comes on the clouds of heaven, until he comes again. And therefore, in the meantime, we must remember him until he does come. That's what we do around this table. Jesus journeyed back to the Father. Second thing, verses 29 to 30, the disciples journeyed to understanding Jesus' words. So we go from the Lord Jesus speaking to the disciples speaking and back to Christ speaking. His disciples said, Ah, now you speak plainly and you are not using this picture-like speech. Now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you came from God. Second thing we find is that it begins to dawn on Jesus' followers that he has come from God and he needs to return to the Father. What may have seen heretofore obscure, now it was beginning to make plainer sense. You know what it's like whenever there's something you don't totally understand and it takes a wee while to grasp the, the enormity of whatever that is? It's a bit like being at school, I suppose, and the, the teacher writes something up on the, well, go back to my day, the blackboard, but there's no such thing as that now. But the, the, the teacher gives you a piece of work and you haven't a notion what they're talking about. And then you put your hand up in class and you ask, Mr. or Mrs. or whatever you call teachers now, um, could, could you explain a wee bit more about this? And they say, yes, that Pythagoras theorem is such and such a thing. I always thought that was a terrible thing because how are you ever going to use that in, in everyday life when you're thinking about, you know, whether you're going to be able to pay the mortgage or not? Pythagoras theorem is not really going to come into it. But there's, there's loads of things that we don't know the answers to necessarily. Um, but what we find here is that as Jesus speaks to them, they begin to understand at a deeper level what he's really saying. The obscurity passes. And it all begins to make plainer sense. It's also interesting to note that the, the, the disciples' acclamation is that they realize that Jesus knows all things. And that he has come from God. And because he's come from God, he knows everything. And this is really a watershed moment in the disciples' experience of the Savior and of his person. They know he's from God and that God is with him. But then Jesus asked something 
says, when Jesus answered them, verse 31, do you now believe? There's this ongoing caveat that there's still a wee bit, as it were, a wee bit of lack of understanding on their part. And their minds could not totally grasp the divinity of Christ and his status as the Son of God. And if we're being perfectly honest with ourselves, elders and people and minister alike, to, to try and understand the, and grasp the enormity of the divinity of Christ is something which is beyond our comprehension. To understand the Trinity, the, the Father dwelling with the Son and the unity of the Holy Spirit is something that we will not understand completely until we see Jesus Christ as he is. And so there's still this caveat in the background that, that, that they don't totally get it. They're getting there. They're on the journey, but they're not just totally at the destination yet, but they're getting the right direction. They're believing, but they're still not in possession of all the facts. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we are in possession of the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we might have access to this supper. This is God's table. And he is invested in those who believe so that they might celebrate with him around it in memory of his son and his once for all sacrifice on the cross. That's what Jesus came to do. Disciples, verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe, we believe that you came from God. If you believe that Jesus came from God, if you believe that Jesus died for you, if you believe that Jesus has saved you and that you have a credible profession of faith, Christ invites you to celebrate this memorial feast until such times he comes again. That's why we've come here tonight. The third thing, Jesus journeyed to the cross. Verses 31 to 33. So Jesus answered them and says, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He asked the disciples a question. Do you now believe? Because he, he, he knows that their ability to believe is limited. Their grasp is limited. And by contrast to the Petrine statements that, that Jesus would never wash his feet in John 13 and 8, and that he would lay down his life for the Lord Jesus in John 13, 37, he realizes that many of their statements are full of bravado, but really limp and content. Because Christ knows all things, so he knows your heart, he knows where you're at, he knows what's going on in your life. He knows that when you close your front door at night time that there's stuff going on that nobody else knows anything about. He knows all about you. In the same way that they knew all about the disciples who he lived with. Peter was that brass disciple who always had to be in the middle of everything. He had to be number one. He had to be top dog. He, who, who, who was brash and blustery and all of those other things. But when I boiled down to it, Peter was just like the rest of the weak disciples. Where he talked the talk, but didn't always walk 
the path that he ought to walk. And Jesus reminds them at this stage of his journey and their journey is that whenever he goes to be with the Father, which is coming soon, you will all be scattered. So they're not going to live together anymore. They're not going to fall in Jesus around the countryside anymore. They're not going to be seeing miracles and other things necessarily this side of Christ's resurrection from the dead. But they're going to be a scattered discipleship. They go back to their own homes. If you think about the whole point of being a disciple, Jesus called them away from the places where they were, James and John. For example, leave your boats, and they left their boats, leave your father, Zebedee, and come and follow me. And they left everything behind, and they came and followed him. Now they're going back to their homes. And Jesus, in realizing their limited ability to actively believe, he nonetheless encourages them to live in the light of the peace that he is about to win for them at the cross because he is about to overcome the world. What sort of type of world are we living in? Well, you don't have to look too far to see what it's like. I started a wee series in, in the book of Jude in Kulnati and Swatra. And the book of Jude, I would encourage you to have a wee read. I know, 25 verses, not that long to read. But boys and dear folks, that's hard to happen stuff for lots of different reasons. Have a read at it and you'll find out for yourself. Jesus is about to overcome the world. He tells the disciples, I'm not going to be alone. You're all going to go away. You're all going to run to the furthest corners of, of Judea. However, the Father is with me. He's there. And I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Because you can imagine how they felt, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to the Lord? He's going to be crucified, whatever it looks like. And we're going to be left on our own. And say la vie. He reminds them that they will suffer tribulation and trouble and difficulty. But they don't need to be afraid. Even though he was going to go away, he was going to die on a cross, he was going to be raised after three days, people were going to doubt, like Thomas and others, that he was even raised from the dead. However, they would still suffer tribulation, but they didn't need to be afraid because Christ was about to overcome the world and Satan and death and the grave and everything else. And because he has overcome every difficulty that we ever face, we need not fear the world or the faces of men. Jesus is never alone because his Father remains with him. As we come to this table very soon, folks, we come as a family, as a body of believers, but we do not come as uninvited guests. There's no old hymn that says, we come as guests invited, that he may bid us dine around this table. We come to remember Jesus Christ's death until he comes again. Hence it says that along the front of the communion table. So come.
to this table because you are invited. Come because you need to come. Come because you are remembering the Savior who has died for you. And you can only remember the Savior that's died for you if you're saved. Can't remember a Savior that died for you if you're not. Jesus journeyed to the cross. We don't need to journey anywhere tonight. We don't need to come up to the front. We're not like our Anglican friends where we come up to the to kneel at the front and we, we receive a common cup and we receive the bread at, the, at the, the rail at the front. We're not like our Methodist brethren who come to the mercy seat at the front to receive the Lord's Supper. You don't even have to journey anywhere tonight. You sit in your own seat and the elders go to you. Christ came from heaven to us so that we might be saved. Christ came from the glories of heaven to our cruel, horrible death the worst torturous death that's ever been devised by anyone on a cross for you and for me. Come because you're invited. Come because you need to. Come because you love the Lord. Let us pray.